podcast where we talk about things with one super special guest every week. Just sit back, relax, and hear us speak on This Is Happening, the podcast. Hello, welcome back. This is Nathan Streifel. And Eric Morris. And this is This Is Happening. Hey, thanks for joining us. So today, we have a special treat. All the way from London, we have storied film producer, director, writer, author, Tony Klinger is with us. Fantastic. Among a resume his... as long as the Constitution, it seems like. And I looked through your stuff, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Among his credits are um, the the Who's film, The Kids Are Alright, um, and many others. We will talk with Tony about his... And other his, rockumentaries. He's recently writing novels and uh, has got films, you know... Um, in the pipeline. Teaches. And it's really also, it's it's evidence of the international reach of this little podcast that we started low these seven weeks ago or so. Yes, our first international <laughs> guest. So. Um, because it's, it's we, we were introduced to Tony through um, a mutual um, friend, uh, Ricky Barnett, who I came in contact with through some of my misadventures in international film distribution, going to the Cannes Film Festival. And so anyway, Tony, welcome. Thank you very much. And I wanted to add also playwright. Uh, Oh, yes, 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 yes. Recently. Novelist um, and playwright. Yeah, I've got my first musical theatre piece uh, that we start workshopping uh, later in the fall. And actually... I, I think of it all as the same thing. For me, it's all about telling stories. I'm a storyteller. Exactly. And it's what I think this town's built on, uh, certainly, and why I feel so comfortable in this town, because there's nothing greater than the ability to share some pleasure and joy in the telling of stories. I yeah, I think that's what, that's what all content has in common. You know, it's like a story, something, you know, some, someone wants to tell a story and then, you know, whether it's a film or a play or a musical or television or digital web series or whatever it is, um, a group of people, a village has to come together to get it out there. So is this your first um, musical theater piece? Yeah, I did a play a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, everybody told me not to do. They said, it's, it's hard work. And you can't make any money. Well, it was a pleasure to do, and you did make a little bit of money. <laughs> oh, that's uh, good. good. It wasn't hard work it was, at all. It was actually quite a shock because I was so prepared for a loss that it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Uh, but and I this was a play tricks. that you wrote. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And and the the upshot was that my very good friend, who you should also speak with, David Courtney. Um, there's two David Courtneys in England. You should understand. There's a guy called Dave Courtney who I won't say that he's a gangster, but if <laughs> other people said that... Could would, be interesting I would, also. I, I would do. never say that, really. <laughs> David, if you're listening, I never said that. <laughs> but David, David Courtney, is a guy I worked with and, and we were associated together for years making product together. And David is... <laughs> it, he was telling me... Uh, we were talking about what we wanted to do together, about mm-hmm. um, his life and times and his music. And I was saying to the guy from the record label and the publisher, I said, you know, he sold 32 million records. You know, this is kind of interesting. And he mm-hmm. said, 
David said 33 and a half million records. <laughs> <laughs> He's keeping strict accounts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it's the story of his life, and it's kind of, I think, um, a bit more Jersey Boys than Fiddler on the Roof, but it's it's that kind of story. It's, it's a great story. It's, it had a very, very uh, interesting life, and I think that Confucius said, it's a curse, isn't it? May you lead an interesting life. <laughs> so so it's like a jukebox musical? Oh, I hate that use, Well, actually, well, I, I get does that. Does it use his music? It uses his music, yeah. but actually in the second scene, we have somebody plug in a jukebox and throw it out the window. Oh, <laughs> oh I love that. So it's self Yeah, I mean, that is kind of a hackneyed term, yeah. and I, you know, but... Um, so it does yeah. use music throughout his life that he has yeah, created. Yeah, but we, do, we don't have the scene where you sit at the piano and, and, and then not, I wrote... It's not Carole King yeah. music. No. Yeah. And so we try... And so there is dialogue, and it's a proper book of, of a play. Very cool. And, and uh, we did the first uh, uh, table read with a young cast... Uh, just last month and I always find those things very nerve-wracking because you think it's good when you've done it on the page right. and then you sit down with a bunch of young actors who probably never heard any of this music before mm-hmm. and you're sitting and you're looking and you're thinking they're, they're going to hate it they're not going to like the music they're not going to like me they're not going to like the place everything's <laughs> wrong and they just loved it and it was just a wonderful feeling awesome. uh, in a kind of way you feel I should stop now while I'm ahead mm. <laughs> <laughs> and not do any more but it's, it's working out well and we're doing the first workshops as I said in the fall and then uh, we hope to be uh, on stage in a London kind of venue uh, wow. by in about a year's time it takes a long time that's the other thing I wasn't so, so it does I've produced, produced theatre and developed a musical with uh, with George Firth who wrote Company with Stephen Sondheim good people it's good people um, but and unfortunately he died while during the process so it kind of like uh, put a damper on it sure. but um, but it was it, yeah, it was a very long process we had a great workshop in New York and um, so is uh, David Courtney working time. on arrangements and part yeah. of the music yeah. which the is which he's never the... done before because he's he was a pop uh, melody writer mm-hmm. and, and songwriter and so I left him with the second draft literally just before I got, I got on the plane uh-huh. to here and I said over to you <laughs> so you, you've written the book yeah. and he's gonna he's adapting his yeah. music and to we've the... got the, uh, the some of the people that are working with us is the guy who took uh, Les Miserables uh, on tour um, in England okay wow. and so it's some really good people that sounds pretty need, legit <laughs> well we need we need that kind of advice I mean yeah you know, totally and you get the best you can get yeah and, you know so, totally. and the, it's exciting it's so what's exciting. it called again it's got the best title of Eddie's show it's called The Show Must Go On which is one of his hits um, <laughs> and he uh, Three Dog Night I think did it here um, mm-hmm. and it was uh, I think a number one in America uh, but it was number one in many countries and it's it's wonderful music. He's a really gifted composer, and his life was uh, very, it, both dramatic and funny. Uh, that's a combination I particularly enjoy. How did you get connected with him? Uh, here, funny enough, just before we, I came to live here, uh, it was actually his fault. Um, we were brought together on a project uh, by a third gentleman who's now no longer with us on this planet, um, and he and I hit it off and he it was him that introduced me to Roger Daltrey uh, he was uh, producing and writing most of the one of I think it was his first album called One of the Boys oh this is in the 70s before yeah. you made yeah. Um, yeah. The Kids Are Alright yeah this is what led to it and oh, okay. um, the 
This is very bad, isn't it? Really, how professional my phone is ringing. Okay. Well, that's okay. We can no we can way. silence. Never that. mind. Cut the interview. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do this anymore. It's, <laughs> it's, it's probably one of my family, and they should know better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's well, up? Good to hear this stuff. Um, yeah, feel free. Feel what, free. What? They're very persistent, aren't they? That's <laughs> it. Um, we had a. I think that's all. The house isn't on fire or anything, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's... It still looks on to me. No, it's, it's still on. Um, that it, is such a small little tiny phone. That's the phone my daughter gave me. I've got my beautiful iPhone here. But okay, so that's not your this normal... Is, this is what you're using here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Gotcha. It's um, just like a throwaway phone for travel and stuff. It's really... I wish it would throw it away. I and we, he introduced me to Roger. He was making the album, and then he said, uh, "Would you, you know, Roger Beatrice is meeting you?" And I'd met him, and he knew I was making rock videos and things like that. And I'd made some stuff with uh, Deep Purple, mm-hmm. uh, who were then one of the biggest groups. And the he, Butterfly Ball was that? Yeah, that I was. I made two. I made one called the Butterfly Ball, and another one called Deep Purple Rises Over Japan, made in Japan album. Right. And and kind of simultaneously. And Roger said, "I've got this track, and would you? What, what ideas you got to to make a video?" And in those days, you either went low budget or high budget. I was the mm-hmm. high budget guy, um, and mm-hmm. it only worked with music I liked. And his. <laughs> pretty good at what he does sure. and, yeah. and so I, I was thrilled with the prospect and that went very well and, and in America at the time don't forget this was just before MTV uh, there was 70s. nowhere to, yeah there was nowhere to play it and so someone made a deal with the people that were doing Star Wars and so it went out as like a mini second feature with Star Wars mm. so they made like two and a half thousand copies of it which was a big deal for me and and the the little which, and which one one of the boys, what uh, the first one I suppose no but which one um, which one of your films was attached to Star Wars this this little video this rock it was music just a music video, video. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, okay. just a music back video. in the day before they were yeah even and so like just for the song. who for a song of theirs called one of the boys Roger Daltrey's song uh, yeah. oh his, yeah. his solo song yeah oh I see and so it went out with them got a lot of attention and the management liked that and the Apparently it was all very well received, and so that's how that that led to me being asked, "What would you do if you would?" And that made so. Why were people? Yeah, why were yeah. why were people deciding to make music videos? Is it, is it just it was another form for them to kind of promote the record, promote the record, and yeah. also add a visual element to yeah, it? Yeah, they they at that stage they they were looking. They had a, a ton of money going through their hands. Right. And they just wanted to spend, I suppose, some of it. <laughs> yeah. And also to express themselves visually. The, the bands were hugely powerful. Um, yeah, I mean, budgets. David Bowie was doing it. Yeah. I mean, there, there was, like you said, it was before MTV. There was yeah. no network. There was so no, there wasn't no a platform. Place. That's right. But, they, you know, they would do it as little film shorts. And That's maybe, right. like you said, yeah. like, you know, in front of a movie or... Or um, then they started to get a bit more ambitious, like the Beatles had... Right. And so, like you know, let's okay if you can really do something, and and it linked to album sales as well, more particularly than singles. For sure. And so, what happened then was it became a big part of 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 what was going on, and so when we started to moot the idea we we're going to make this movie, I think we had out of the seven major companies, five of them made us an offer to give us all the money, and wow. and we and the minute they heard that they said, ah, we don't want their money, we'll do it. 
<laughs> and well, they, they had more money than anybody. And the Who <laughs> had already made Tommy, right? Well, they made it with a, a with the film company Columbia, I think. Yeah. And they didn't like the way that had been handled, and so they were determined not to go down that route again. And that was part of the, the rationale behind. The Maybe they didn't did. like Ken Russell, or no, no, no. They, I think they got they they did like Ken Russell. Funny enough, I did deal with him later, but it was it was uh, about the negativity that they encountered at the studio. Oh, okay. uh, originally, there was a man who became a friend of mine called Bobby Lippman, who was an agent and an executive at the company. And he had knew about the Tommy thing coming, and he wrote a 20-page memo saying why they should back it and be involved, and they turned it down. And eventually, he somehow convinced them, or they went ahead with it, and they lost the memo, and so he was he he was got rid of, and uh, it's the normal story of studios. Well, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Right. Uh, you know the guy who made the, the decision that they didn't like, they get rid of him, and uh, they the the band knew that that they knew what had really happened. All oh, right, and so they didn't feel. I suppose welcome. So, so the kids are out. Sorry, you go. Well, I'm just going to say that. So the. Did they have a concept of like okay, th- this next movie wasn't like because the kids are alright album is not like a rock opera that tells no. a story like Tommy was. No, so no. did they have a, a no? They concept? had a con- they had a con- you've got to understand with the Who in particular uh, at that stage the the original management kit Lambert Christian had in them a visual sense. They wanted to be filmmakers, not musical people. They that's what the vision was for the mm, band mm-hmm. right and it was a totally visual thing and the music was impo- of course it's important but it wasn't the driving force of the management they wanted to be in the film business mm, and mm. so what then happened was uh, everything was aimed towards that so when I was working with them on the kids are all right they were talking to me about Quadrophenia and McVicar the films that they then went on to make right I had by then lost my love affair with them and so I was keen to leave the door and what then happened was there was many fights uh, and, and my book The Who and I which is uh, you, we talk about was was an example of what was going on because at that time it the, the love affair had become a nightmare and uh, just working with a band trying to make the movie a whole bunch of reasons a whole and it's bunch all in the book yeah of course yeah and, and what happened was and, it, and no one comes out of it like in any story no one's right no one's wrong it's shades of grey um, what I wanted to do with the book was to demonstrate to other creative people what it's what it's really like to when you mix music and film when and, did you when did you release the book the original book was done about that was called Twilight of the Gods yeah that's right yeah, and, and, so and that was about the making edition. of yeah, I mean, the kids I, are right. I should explain why there's a second edition and why my career has gone in a different direction slightly which is in in this book it happened because and i wear this necklace and it, this is not bullshit this is for real um what's I, the necklace explain to the i have got to explain four or five years ago something like that um i had had skin cancer this mm-hmm. is a good good lesson for anybody listening mm. get yourself checked out um and I had had several instances, and, and because I'd filmed on very hot locations, which I know a lot of the listeners here will have done, and I thought I was invulnerable, like everybody does. Didn't and, use sunscreen? Uh, I didn't even think about it. 
I didn't. Right. I, I was so focused on you were doing. You're doing your thing, and you think you're a big tough boy, and you can deal with anything. Mm-hmm. And I got skin cancer, and I had lots of. Did r- you just have a mole or something that you were? A mole that you know, and you watch out for moles, type of thing, freckles uh-huh. that change color, get yeah. crusty, and, and you're right. The when, edges look uneven. Type yeah, thing. and you've got to watch out for those. And things. when a when a doctor or dermatologist says to you, like, I, I think I want to do a, bi- a biopsy of this, you should listen to them. Listen to them and yeah. act on it. And yeah. I had. A succession of these, uh, I, I, I have obviously a propensity towards it. Uh, this was about, I must have had like 60, 70 things done. Oh, wow. And the procedures were getting progressively a bit more heavy. Wow. And in one of the procedures, they said, we've got to put you out because we've got to take a skin graft because it's going to be kind of major and otherwise you'll leave your scars. Mm-hmm. And so that was all fine. I was okay for it. I wasn't, I'm no hero, but you know, okay, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. Yeah. And they put me out, and as I was going out, I felt strange. And at that point, what happened was, I now, in retrospect, know I was allergic to uh, amoxicillin, which is a penicillin derivative, and I went into anaphylactic shock, and I died. And This is while you were under? Yeah. Getting a skin graft? Yeah. And uh, while I was under, I died. I, I didn't see a white light. I didn't have any of that. But I, I literally, my heart stopped for several minutes. And fortunately for me, and this is not <laughs> dramatizing, it's what happened. The, in the next operating theater were the crash team that deals with people that have crashed. Right. Wow. I was a very lucky boy. And they came in, I now know. And when I came round, thinking, I can't feel anything to my head. It feels the same as it did before. Mm-hmm. And my wife had appeared and my kids had appeared. And there was like 15 medics around me including this real big guy, and he's crying as I come around. Yeah. And, and, and I think, why is this big guy who yeah, I've never met crying? Yeah, what's going on? What's happening? And, and it, he, he, he had been the guy who jumped on me and had been thumping me on the chest to get my heart going. Oh, my and God. So, and it had got to him emotionally. So did they give you some sort of drug to counteract the allergic yeah, reaction? Yeah, I, and I, that's I believe so, yeah. I, I don't know what happened precisely. Right, right, right. And then they ran tests on me for a long while, and, got, and I was fine. I was like, mm-hmm. lucky, lucky, lucky boy. Uh, but it then taught me the lesson, which is the only lesson I want to take out of this, which I, I'm now a public speaker about stuff like this, which is live life for today and get busy. Don't screw around. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't think, oh, I've got limitless time. The one thing you don't have is an excess of time. What you got is today, now. Absolutely. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry yeah. about the past. Live now. That's great and, advice. And that's true. And so that's what I've been doing. And, and that's why I've had this ridiculously productive period because I've just took the brakes off and I don't wait. And, you know, if an opportunity comes or somebody, I meet somebody and it's an interesting thing, I go for it. Right. And I think everybody would be better to do that. So you had a period so of this, kind of... Sorry. sorry. I mean, we, we talked about... Um, because he said the reason that there's a second book. So you wrote the Who and I, even as a second edition of to Twilight put that and message the Gods. In. Yeah. Oh, to include the like, this is Carpe Diem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Message. Yeah, and I, I and I had always thought, even from because that was the first publisher that did the first book, who find people and everything. But why did they insist on calling it The Twilight of the Gods? That was the original title, was The Who and I. Right. And they said, no, 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 they wouldn't let me do that. And I 
to this day I don't understand why it's obscure yeah, Twilight and the make, Gods I mean, well, did they understand. come up with that title yes it's, it's, I was going to say rude words but I'm straight I'm, 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 <laughs> we, I think we can read between we, the lines this is a po- it's a podcast we're not okay, we're, regulated it's, it's a shit title yeah. and, <laughs> and, and I said it and we had this huge fight and, and then my attorney said you know you've signed a contract they have that right and you can't do anything about it yeah so and, the contract lapsed or something I, I got I got this publisher to negotiate out of that deal nice uh, for me and not only that they the choice of the uh, the photos was wrong and they insisted on it being a hardback and I said this is supposed to be for the people right. it should be less expensive and yeah, so sure. we had a complete and utter disagreement and uh, we did okay I'm not saying we didn't sell copies we did but I thought this is can I do it the way I wanted to do it and All so that's to begin what with. this is Good. And, and I think I was right I, I, well we it's on a pledge music campaign you know what that is we put a, um, the new publishers put it on a thing called pledge music which is available you can look it up pledge music is it like a donation type website no no you yeah no it's it's they package things so you can buy reproduced posters you know the whole package oh okay for this book with the film and everything about it is now available on Pledge Music. So they do kind of a collection thing that, that they put yeah. all of these different so you pieces can get the and materials together. Everything on this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's super yeah. cool. And it, the and DVD of... PledgeMusic.com? Uh, I think it's PledgeMusic.com or PledgeMusic.co.uk, but it's one of cool. those two. And it's, it's, it's a really cool site, and they did a great... I honestly think it's a great job, because if you're a fan and you want what is that all about it's, yeah. it's the it's the ultimate package and it's you get great. everything it's yeah, like yeah. the collector's it's really edition well and the who has you know fans around the world so, yeah. so you can tap yeah. into that and, and it's been it's been doing great um, and I've, I I just felt we weren't doing any of that stuff and I, yeah. I just thought I couldn't understand it and I actually you know from a, from a creative person's point of view why would they pay me in advance and then not exploit it yeah and not let you do everything that you were thinking of as an artist I mean it's too bad that it was a more collaborative experience but it it yielded this you know so like now it has renewed life that it wouldn't have had without it you're absolutely right so you said you wanted to add that kind of addendum because you realized you couldn't you didn't want to wait on things so did you have like a period of latency where you weren't really producing much I I went I went no it's kind of it actually comes back to this town I was I'd been working here and living here and been doing okay. Mm-hmm. And when did I you move here? When did you move to the, from the late seventies to the mid late eighties? So you were were you doing the film? Were you living here when you were doing the Kids Are Alright? No, just immediately after. Immediately okay, after so you that. finished that. You moved here, and, and we were doing stuff here. This stuff in Chicago. I did some commercials. I did you know all that kind of the stuff that we all go through. Right. And then uh, we. This is a story that's actually in the play that I've written because we were working together. We had a piece that we'd come up to, with together um, and the late Julia Phillips got interested in it. She was a big-time producer. Yes, you'll never eat lunch in this town that's again. That's who it was. And Julia she, Phillips? Yeah, she What's, worked with she Close Encounters, I think. Um, Jaws, yeah. I don't think, Close, and maybe Close Encounters with her husband. Yeah. Um, and what's you'll never eat lunch in this she, county that's again. the name of her, her book. book oh she was a tough okay. one. it's a great okay, so great she was book. a little bit of a oh, hardballer she, oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah she and was. she 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 came to us to talk about this project we had David and myself and in the conversation um, 
It became apparent by the fact that she was carrying a 10 by 8 of David's head. (laughs) (laughs) That she rather liked David. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she wanted to get involved with this project. And then she said... Wait, which project? It was a project called Shooting Star. This is your play? No, this this was a precursor of the play, funny enough. Yes, it was. Something you'd written? Uh, I'd written an outline and David had written some music and it was based on some of the same concepts that were later to be used. And when was this again? In about 82, 83. I'm just trying to chronologically get everything in. My life is not chronological, but I accept that. So Julia got very interested and she said, but you need a star. And we said, yeah, we do. We need a star. And she said, have you thought of Michael Jackson? This is, he was the hottest thing in the world. Of course. Mm-hmm. And we said, yeah, that would be cool. You know, should I can get him? And we got very excited. Wow. And so flash forward, we sat there for a year waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was the time he was changing his physiognomy. And yeah. that was, we later found out because he, well, so she said, because he wanted to play Peter Pan for Steven Spielberg in his film. And that's why he changed his look. And uh, uh, you know, I don't want to go into the details and graphic detail, yeah. but he was changed himself, and he never was going to get to play that part. And for Steven Spielberg, was it the film that later became Hook? Yeah. yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. And uh, this whole thing, we then uh, the the payoff was at the end of a year of you know yes 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 we then had this phone call where we said like what's going to happen and they were, we, we couldn't get through anymore uh, it was like we were cut off and it was kind of a bitter uh, taste and that was the first thing I thought you know what I don't need this shit yeah um, and I then was thinking well it's hard to be so removed from this process like yeah. someone else says like oh I can get Michael yeah. Jackson you spend a year with your project in limbo yeah yeah, and, and after a typical. year it's like all of the yeah. zest well, you've, of it. everybody that's listened to this or, or you guys has had similar experiences oh like sure you know. and what happened then was somebody came along to me and offered me to be head of production for a little company that had been um, a mini mini major uh, who had been a library kind of company, distribution, television sure. stuff, of uh, a man called Hal Brown, who was a very nice man. And I remember very vividly thinking, maybe this is what I should do, because we were then discussing, should I have the Mercedes or the Beamer? Um, could we get <laughs> afford the house in Pacific Palisades? And I was literally signing the papers uh, at the VIP lounge at the LAX on the way home, and we're going to get our stuff and come back, and that's it. We're mm-hmm. going to go and do that. And I, my wife said, put the pen down. And she, I said, why? She said, because you, you, your heart's not in it. Mm. And I'd lost my mojo. I got to the point where I thought, mm. you know what? This is not what I want to do. And the reason why was, and it may sound kind of stupid, but um, I had this conversation with him just before we went to the airport, how? And I said, you know, I'm going to be head of production. I said, does that mean within the purview, within the budget, I get to make the decisions? And he went, yeah, other than for what I want to do. Uh, <laughs> and I said, but I'm not the head of production. He said, well, yeah, you've got the title and you'll get the money. And But if I you know, want to overrule you and the board says, and I, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm not kidding. You know, I'm kidding myself here. I'm, I'm going to yeah. be... You're never going to be able to have never. the creative control that you really desire. And so we went back and unbeknownst to me, my wife had, uh, because she's much cleverer than me, she had uh, made arrangements for me, for me to be interviewed to be head of a course teaching film production in England at a place called the Bournemouth Film School. 
and I didn't know. And a phone <laughs> rang, and they said, "Would you come for an interview?" And I said, who, who, "Like what for what?" And they told me, and I'd never been interviewed for anything in my life. And I went there, and I didn't know how to be sneaky, sneaky of her. Well, I interviewed them because yeah. it just seemed logical to me to do mm-hmm. it that way around. And sure. it was the start of a delightful period of a few years. Uh, I had huge success. It went, went very well, mm-hmm. um, and the passion of the students reignited my passion. And oh, it was gosh, during that period that I wrote. So you went into academia. Yeah, and and I loved it. Mm-hmm. The trouble was I got promoted out of it. Um, I, I, I think I was a good teacher, a good mm-hmm. lecturer. And the trouble is in academia, if you're good at that, they promote you out of that. Into administration. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. so it, before I finished, I was the director of a, a university. I had 13 promotions in like seven years or something. That's crazy. And, and it was it's kind of exciting. That's kind of fun. But yeah. then I realized I had something like several thousand students under my direct control mm-hmm. and a staff of 150 and I don't know how many technicians and things and I, I didn't even know the names of the students anymore right and and I, it was then suddenly deeply unsatisfying so I bought myself uh, my department I had a, a contract that allowed me to commercially acquire one of my directorates I was a director of three departments mm-hmm. and did that and that we allowed you to commercially acquire yeah. one of the yeah it was a, a research uh, director we were making cell phone interaction technology gotcha uh, I'm a bit of a nerd and a geeky guy on the side no, so it was, I'm a nerd too and, and I kind of like doing stuff like algorithms I, mean, I, I know it's, just, it's kind of a strange vibration, <laughs> but it was something I enjoyed doing and, and we then got out of that but during that period was I started to write again and you know started to get the, my the juice is going again mm-hmm. and also I think that when you when you like it it's one thing but when other people tell you it's good you get excited it's yeah. kind of fun mm-hmm. um, and it's hard to stop once it's like a drug it's a good mm-hmm. drug though it's not a bad drug um, other than there are people within the industry that are evil bastards <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it's, it, once you get past that I think also there are some wonderful people it's like that in every industry I suppose right I think it's magnified, and I think it's magnified because there are, apart from gifted people, and there are a lot of them, mm-hmm. and hard-working people, and hard-working gifted people is a combination that's hard to beat. What there is also are a lot of get-rich-quick merchants who think it's easy because they've seen a movie and they think, oh, I could do that, mm-hmm. and I could be that, I could do that. And they don't think about the hard work or anything like that. And so I, I find that it's um, something you've just got to get over, You've just got to accept that there are those guys, and You're some of them are going to make that. a lot of money, and you know, good luck to them. So, when you started working on your musical and working with these young actors, like you said, there's now these young actors. Does it remind you of going back to the teaching? Uh, yeah, I, I get a buzz oh. out of their buzz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I also, I I love actors because I think they're like kids, and and <laughs> and, and I like working with kids. Uh, yeah. I enjoy that, <laughs> <laughs> and I I also think. That I'm a big kid, and, you know, and I just the the fact that I have the ability to write to express mm-hmm. myself uh, gives me I'm like a supercharged life. It's what what could what could be better than that? You're telling mm-hmm. you're doing something you love. You sometimes even get paid for it, and you get to be known by people. I mean, because what's famous? Famous just means that more people know you than you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and and the the joy of doing it is inescapable. And I, I have you ever met? 
like an accountant that's as happy as a filmmaker? Never. <laughs> no. For sure. For sure. No, I don't know. It's hard. And, uh, and I, I, feel, I feel for them because it must mm-hmm. be tough. Because I'm sure most of them are creative in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that they haven't but got the means to express it. All that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's tough. Let's go back a little bit to like the very beginning. Because you, you come from a, at least your, your father was a well known um, filmmaker as well. He produced uh, a film called Get Carter. He was involved in distributing um, Roman Polanski's early films. He basically produced those first two right. films. Yeah. He so used to own a strip club, I read. Is that true? <laughs> I thought yeah. that was really interesting. But this is before the movies. Was yeah, it? No, he, really? was, he, was, he was a very interesting man. He was, first of all, I loved him. He was a great guy. Mm-hmm. Second of all, uh, people misunderstand him. He was a cockney like myself. Mm-hmm. And he uh, was, first of all, an engineer. Structural engineer. When you say right. Cockney, what is the the born, I... born within the sound of Bow Bells? It means you're central London. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. And he was. So people would assume. What are Cockneys kind of known to be like, or is there a sort of? Well, it's the Michael Caine. Michael Caine is a Cockney. Gotcha. And it's, but, and it's yeah. really distinguishable by the accent yeah, that you're yeah. speaking with. Yeah, that's no. my accent. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a broad Cockney because I was taken and they gave me elocution lessons, but. Still fairly cockney. Right. A very bad <laughs> example of a cockney accent is Dick Van Dyke. Oh, that's a terrible in, example. Yeah, in, uh, <laughs> in Mary Poppins. But that's what he's trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he's yeah. going for. Yeah, exactly right. Cockney <laughs> is more like a blue, blue collar every man, yeah? Yeah, kind working of? class. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and people would assume, because he had that accent and that manner, that he was not a well read man. But, you know, he'd read. Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. every he knew by heart. And this is Michael Klinger. That yeah, we're my about. dad was Michael Klinger, and he was also had a photographic memory, total recall, mm-hmm. and and was as sharp as a tack. He looked like Pickwick, uh, in, you know, in Dickens' character, but mm-hmm. he was not like Pickwick. <laughs> uh, he, uh, and he he was uh, after the war, Second World War. England was very, very down on its knees and was he in the Was he in the army? No, he had what was called a reserved occupation because he designed and made machines that made bombs and stuff like that. Gotcha, so he was, uh, yeah, so he he was, was working for the war effort, but not yeah. as a soldier. He volunteered, I found out when he died, uh, he volunteered 11 times uh, and got arrested four times for doing so because he was not allowed to do that. Wow. And he even volunteered for the Canadian Air Force, like anything, and he just fancied himself to be a pilot. Mm. Uh, but he was not allowed. And happily for me, because he probably got shot down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he, he, at the end of the war, the, he, along with everybody else, had no money. And so he, his, uh, my mother's family made kiddies coats out, as an outdoor sweatshop for big chain of stores and so my dad who was you know about time emotion studies and stuff like that worked out that they were losing money the way they were doing it and they should sell the cabbage the cabbage is the clothes you could make with the spare cloth from from that order so they give you so much mm. cloth you make a thousand coats if you're good at cutting you know there's then you can get like a hundred more coats and, and you can sell yourselves. them and that's called your cabbage and you're allowed to do that and that's permissive permitted mm-hmm. gotcha and then you'd go and sell those coats if you could uh, he was my kiddies coats and so my first memory was them lowering from the top of this little sweatshop the coats over like a pulley um, uh-huh. thing in this little house and then they'd take it to a place called shepherd's bush market 
And my first memory, because I was a cute-looking little kid, was I'd come around the corner in the kiddies' coat in the winter, mm-hmm. and my dad would call out, oh, there's a person whose father's bought him a coat. How's that coat? And I was supposed to say, it, it's lovely and warm, Governor. Oh but I God. used to forget and call him Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I was never good at that stuff. And so... That's uh, so you were in entertainment very early. Oh, yeah. We were using <laughs> as, a, as a prop. And, and then he, while he was there, he uh, ran into a guy who had another stall selling china plates and stuff like that. And the guy said, I, there's a nightclub in London and I think they might want to sell it but I haven't got any money. Would you want to come in with me and maybe we could do a deal? Because mm-hmm. I could be doing, arrange the music and you know I could be the compere and you could do the business. And so my dad said, yeah, let's have a look at it. Because he had already had an experience with the coat business and making that work and everything. Basically, kind of. he just wanted to make some money. <laughs> yeah, it he was, was like, whatever, was, I'll no, take the club, yeah, sure. There wasn't any great strategy. It's just like, how do I get out of this? Mm-hmm. And so they went to the club and the man said, yeah, that cost X thousands of pounds. And they didn't have it, thousands of pounds. And my dad realised the guy's name was a man called Billy Belitho. And he said, are you any relation to Belitho in Cornwall, in Devon? Mm-hmm. And they went, yeah. And it turns out Belitho's had a bank. And he said, would your bank lend us the money to buy you out? <laughs> <laughs> and he got the guy to lend him the money to buy him out. Oh, wow. And wow. he's a clever guy. And that Barclays Bank in England, which you've probably heard of Barclays yes, as well, the world, yes. is still, I think, got a Belitho on their bar, because they bought, Barclays bought Belitho Bank and years later. And so they had this club. My dad hated it. Uh, but I still have memories of it. Because but they, they turned used, it around and made it successful oh, and yeah. profitable. And, and what happened was, because I used to go to the club, I was a little boy, and there were the strippers there, and I didn't know much about anything but I remember they stopped me coming there when I started to wink at the girls because <laughs> they were naked and they were nice and they were very nice to me and I, I then he by about 1958 so this was like I was seven eight years old mm-hmm. uh, he had uh, had an offer for another club site around the corner that was in Dean Street in Soho in London my dad came from Soho which is like the tough part of London mm-hmm. and they said there's another place around the corner and so he said that looks good they said but you won't fit for a club and somebody else he met said we maybe a cinema now this is 1958 there hadn't been a cinema built in England since 1935-36 because of the war and mm-hmm. no money and everything mm-hmm. and so he said, that sounds like a great idea it's better because it's not a club and so he then started to get that together because as an engineer you could figure out you know we could do this we could do that and then somebody who was a guy who understood about cinema said but there's no angle to this to the screen you you won't be able to project onto the screen it won't work and he then figured out actually if you bounce the image off a mirror backwards and then backwards again you know you could work out the angles you could do it from, you can make it you work. Make it you don't need behind it. the screen. So he worked on like a projector. Yeah, he kind worked, of thing. It, worked and, and a double mirror. Yeah, and he did. Then, he invent that yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, that is crazy. And he was a clever guy. And and before. so he kind of just happened into the whole cinema industry just because. Well, he, it went backwards because what then happened was that he, in England at the time, there was a thing called the monopolies of the cinema. Only there was two major. It was mm-hmm. a duopoly. Sure. They had uh, it rigged with a thing called logging and barring, which meant that any time they had a film from a major distributor, 
you could no one else could play it unless without their permission within a seven mile radius so he right. was in the west end of london and so he couldn't get any films so now he's built a cinema and he's got no films oh. and so he like tragedy so he then <laughs> thought well maybe i could do something clever i know about clubs what i'll do is i won't sell tickets to the cinema i'll sell membership to a club which shows the films for nothing and he mm. did that and then they still barred him they still found a way of barring him so then he thought well maybe I can oh as him. a workaround so people yeah. aren't technically paying That's tickets right. to see the movie right. but they still they still objected so then he, he and they didn't realise he was a cineast he knew all the films of the world particularly foreign films and he loved foreign films mm. and so he thought I'm going to play the films that are banned because in those times films were banned and so he found films that were banned like Triumph of the Will about the Nuremberg rally <laughs> Which, was, which, which for a Jewish yeah. guy was kind of daring to play that absolutely and he <laughs> then and the wild ones uh, you know, famous films yeah and he started to play those films and he was taking more money in his 220 seat cinema than the cinema around the corner with 2000 seats there were wow. people fighting to get in and it became a huge success and then he then thought, this is like easy. And so he started to open more cinemas, he built more cinemas. And before a few months, a year, he had 20, 30, 40 cinemas. And then the next thing that started was, at simultaneous to that, I don't need these distributors to send me films, I'll become a distributor, I can do that. And so my first thing as a professional person, as a kid, a holiday time, vacation time, uh, I was like, I was a kid. He sent me to Paris to buy films. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And, and, you know, what was the name of his company? Compton. C-O-M-P-T-O-N. And it was, because it was in Old Compton Street. Okay, Compton. And, mm-hmm. and he then started to make films. Uh, Does that exist as a company? No, no, he in, sold it many no. years ago. Okay. And then he, when he got, it got very big, very fast. It got a lot of big, uh, it was the most successful independent Europe company in Europe uh, became wow. the biggest independent distributor in Europe and it was, it was a big concern and people assume like I think you probably did that I came in through that route actually I came in because of writing I'd won some competitions for for writing mm-hmm. uh, the, the chocolate companies Nestle and Cadbury's used to come around to schools including mine and show you the films about uh, you know uh, how they made chocolate and I was naturally interested in that. And sure, so I yes. wrote essays for that, and I won one of them, and I tied for first place in the other one, and the prize was as much chocolate as you could eat. <laughs> and, and, of course, film, chocolate, writing, you know, that was me. Right, I mean, but that was like writing ad copy, kind yeah, of. Yeah, I mean, it was... There's a definite, like, career, you know, path you could have taken. I, I, suppose, I suppose that's right. I was offered, funnily enough, and people don't know this, and it's, it's a strange thing. My first colleague that I worked with made my first small films, and those films just been re-released, uh, was a guy called Mike Litton. And we were starting work. And a guy in this town, funnily enough, uh, Barry Cross was our agent. Oh, I know Barry. Barry. Well, Barry said to us, I think I can get you in on a deal. And, you know, you can get you really going. And we made this little film. He said that somebody's seen your stuff and he's very interested. And we were introduced to a young filmmaker who was going to make a, his first feature. And you had the script that you No, were no, no, this was just, just, he just called us in as directors. And, mm-hmm. and we came in, I was 18. Yeah. And 
Mike was about 19 or 20, and we came in, this guy's name was Ridley Scott, and he was going to make this film that became Alien. Oh, oh my <laughs> God. That is crazy. And, and we were going, we don't want to try and direct like he wants. You know, like, what are you talking about? Man. And we, we were turning it down. Uh, <laughs> well, you can't win them all. Yeah, we don't. You know, when you're 18, 19, you think you know everything and you know nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. and that's a plus and a minus, as you know. Yeah. And so we we were going that route. No, I think the older you get, the more you realize that you don't you don't know everything. You and know, like and you know you know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened was, that, so that was one thing. And at the same time, this was my first writing thing, films that one of which I'm making later this year called the Havana Chronicles. Um, I'd written an outline, apropos of nothing, and I had another guy who was with me who later went on to do the Buddy Holly story called Greg Smith. And Greg said, you know, that piece you've written, that's really good. Could you write that up as a book? I said, I suppose I could. You know, I've never tried writing a book. It's like kind of an extensive thing. Yeah. And I said, well, I think, let me see if I can get a deal for you. And he went to a publisher called Hodder and Stoughton in England. And he came back and he said, I've got a deal for you and you can write that as a book and they'll publish it for you. Now I'm 18, right? And he said, and it, it, I'll get you £2,500, which is quite a lot of money in those days. And I said, but how long will it take you to write a book? Because I've never written one. He said, well, I don't know, six months to 18 months, I guess. I said, do you think I'm going to work for 18 months for £2,500? Are you joking? <laughs> 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 and I didn't do a publishing deal for another 40 years. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, because I, I went screenwriting and stuff like that. And, right. and so I, 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 I suppose I've had the perfect career if you inverted it. <laughs> but you, you, you do things. I mean, the fact is, the, the, the wonderful thing is to still have opportunities and still be able to exploit them. But, the, you know, they don't come in an obvious way. It's like, it seems like so neat that I should follow my dad in the film industry. We actually never worked together at all a lot later. And when we worked together, it was because he, he people didn't know he had a heart condition. And I was helping out. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought he knew nothing and he thought I knew nothing. But our accountants and lawyers, you know, you could halve your costs if you worked together. You know, why you got an office and he's got an office and what you're doing. And we were like two ends of the very different, you know, situation. It, it, you know, and you were already, were you established at that point? Fairly by well? then, yeah. yeah. Yes. Wow, what was when it like was going... That? Sorry? Was that like in the, in the 80s? Uh, 70s, 80s, yeah. 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 Was it nice to work with your dad after it all of those years? It was fantastic. We had, we had our fights, um, mm-hmm. but then you'd have your fights with anybody that was, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he was the best script editor I've ever met, still to this day. Mm-hmm. Sorry about my phone. <laughs> no, that's okay. And he, and he was also a fantastic film producer. Um, and you can see the difference when you sort of about Polanski, you know, because uh, people don't know. He actually didn't take a credit, but he actually produced the uh, Repulsion and Cold Okay. And the person that's supposed to have done wasn't there very much. And he was always on the set, my dad. And... Look at those films and look at the value of those films against the cost. Oh and, my god! And, and, huge. And, and you've got to say something was causing that to happen. And if you look at Polanski's work, and Polanski would hate me for saying this, but screw him. You, you'll actually, you actually, <laughs> you actually can see. 
that he worked best when he had a tough producer. Yeah. And, and Old Man was a tough producer. Not in a negative way, in a positive way, but he would make you... Well, someone who was through. challenging him. Yeah. And, 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 that, and giving him some restrictions. That's right, yeah. yeah. Polanski, if you don't give him restriction, if you brown nose him, and there's been some have done that, uh, you know, unfortunately, the work is just not as good. And then he ends up raping children. Yeah, well, that's another problem. No, that's a, yeah, it's, it's, that it's a really the most issue helpful me. thing for a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Now he he uh, he has. Well, I, I remember when he wrote a book and they were having some fights, and I was peripherally involved. I won't go into detail, but I remember my dad ringing him and saying, "You know, Roman, the only part of your book that's accurate is the first part." And the first part of the book said, "I've always had a difficulty telling fact from fantasy." <laughs> <laughs> and from there it just takes the wrong yeah. turn and yeah. did you also make a documentary about your dad I'm doing it right now yeah um, so you're, that's in process yeah, yeah the, I'm making a thing called The Man Who Got Carter and I, I took a time out and I couldn't figure out in my head you know sometimes you just don't know why you're thinking it away yourself mm-hmm. and the reason was because in doing it I suddenly realised I'm now the age he was when he died oh wow, wow. And, and now I want to do it and that just felt right. Are you directing it? Yeah. So are you doing interviews with like yeah. Michael Caine? Yeah, I've already done. Michael. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Michael showed what a professional he is and, and a mensch, if you understand the word mensch. Of course. And he he came on this our little set and, you know, other people who are not anywhere in his class sort of come on a big time. He came on and went to every member of the crew, said, hello, my name's Michael Caine. What's your name? What do you do? Tell me. Oh, did you work on something? And he was thankful to every single person there. That's and a class that's why he's a star. George Clooney's like that too. Yeah. That's just, just it makes you feel good. It, it does. And so many people are not that way, yeah. you know, and that you come across, and who are stars as well, but, you know, they just, they don't have quite Michael is, that Michael also has the, I think, I don't think I've ever seen him give a bad performance. He's, he's amazing. He's fantastic. Yeah. He's I mean, so I've seen true. him in bad films. He's so true. But he's just totally on it, always. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, it just makes me think, he has these um, Michael Caine on acting um, Did you see tapes? that Masterclass? Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Fabulous, are yes. They the, are they the yes. old ones from, like, the 80s? Because yeah. I've seen those as well, yeah. They're fantastic, and um, but they're also kind of hilarious, because okay. he's, he's not quite, you know, it's like... Some of his advice is like, you know, you know, make sure your driver, you know, knows the directions to the set. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, okay, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a high class problem. Well, I also, I th- the only thing I thought of him, which I thought was inhibiting, was some of the things he could do because he could do it. The person receiving mm. the information can't do, so it's not no point telling. No, like some, yes. It's like Usain Bolt saying to you, you know what you need to do is run really fast. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, one of the things he was saying too is just like, do like when you're acting, do nothing yeah. with your face, keep it still, and then just let thoughts yeah. flicker across your face and in your eyes, mm-hmm. and the camera will catch it. And and I was at the time doing a little bit of film acting so it was that's why I was watching it and he's brilliant absolutely brilliant well I saw him on the first day of the filming of his film with Lawrence Olivier Sleuth oh yeah and I was on the set and Olivier was kind of casual and he was like really revved up Michael mm-hmm. and he was really slaying Olivier on that first day and he said he won't let me do that tomorrow and I said what do you mean he said 
He said, tomorrow, he said, he'll know what's happened. He said, I'm just a mini miner. He says, I'm full revs. He says, that's a Rolls Royce. He says, wait till that starts going. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's smart. Oh, yeah. He knew, he knew that was going to happen. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they closed the set. The next day, you couldn't get on there. <laughs> 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 they closed it. Yeah, yeah. sure. So, it's, I mean, it sounds like you have so much going on right now. Um, you've got the, the musical... Um, so well, yeah, we, let's go through some of the stuff that's like kind of current. Um, so the musical, what's the when does that come out, or is there? Well, so we're workshop workshopping in the fall for a, a proper presentation in the spring of next year. And it's called the, the show must go on. The show must go on, and that's you know I, I'm obviously very excited about that. We have a film uh, that I've written the script for and I'm producing, which a guy called Oliver Schmitz is directing, called Just a Boy which is based on the story of Richard McCann, whose mother was the first, Wilma McCann, was the first victim of the Yorkshire Ripper, which was a mass murderer in England. And although it sounds like terribly depressing, it's actually not depressing because it's a story of his redemption from Mm. that terrible start and being in foster care and virtual adoption situation. And uh, he got into drugs and dealt drugs and went to prison and everything was terrible, got thrown out of the army. And he's now uh, one of the most successful inspirational speakers in England. Um, oh, wow. That's fantastic. Well, that's a great guy. angle, you know, to market. And this is film. a film coming out. That's a film, and we don't shoot, we shoot that in, uh, just before the play is, I'm shooting that in uh, Leeds, gotcha. where it took place, and Germany, where it took place. Oh, fantastic. And we've got another three films, which is a trilogy, which I was touching on the book thing, mm-hmm. called The Havana Chronicles, and we're shooting those back to back. One of the three of them. Is that after this book that you wrote? No, that's another book. It's another oh story. Gosh, you're just so full, 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 full. You're going, 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 going. But those going. are all financed and... and well, I suppose... You know, I never think of anything being financed until I've spent until you're the money. On this, uh, <laughs> no, no, when I've finished. When well, finished, the Havana, right. In the can. Yeah. The Havana <laughs> trilogy, that was from the thing that you had started many, many, many yeah. years ago. It was based gotcha. on a real person, and it's an extension of that story. Um... Uh, I, I, I'll tell you what it was I went uh, to a swimming pool an outdoor swimming pool when I was a kid and like many boys there was a beautiful girl she laid down in front of us <laughs> and, the, and the, my friends were all very nervous and I was never built to be nervous and so I went to approach the girl and she said what's your name I said my name's Tony I said what's your name she said the Princess Anastasia and ha 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 I thought it was funny <laughs> and she really thought I found out later that she was the Princess Anastasia and turned out as, as I found out I dated her just for a few weeks and we had a great time you know, we were young kids and we you went dated up. a princess when you were a kid that's crazy well, well we someone should, who no, was under the delusion that yeah, she was delusion. the the Russian that's right. emperor wait so it wasn't actually a princess no, she she, a that actual person was killed yeah, yeah, yeah um, dead but yeah <laughs> not, there, did not know that there's a that movie called Anastasia and it's also an animated so you dated actually a crazy person well I didn't know she was crazy because I took it lightly pretty much that it was a joke and and then what happened was um, she went off, we went to her apartment and her mum was making us a cup of tea <laughs> and she went to the John and her mum said, you know, you're really being great with Suzanne. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, since she's been back from the asylum, you know, not many people <laughs> deal with her. <laughs> and, and it turned out she'd attacked her mum with a bread knife and, oh. and she had a problem. Wow. 
And so I thought, that's really interesting. Because being a writer, you think of those things. But you that, go, that could be a great story. That didn't end it for you. No, that... You continued to see her. Well, no, but very briefly, because I, <laughs> I became scared. I was very nervous. Yeah, and that's a real red flag. Yes, yes. People with bread <laughs> knives is not good. Yeah. And no, so that... No. This not unless story, they're bakers. Well, this story is then a trilogy <laughs> of, of what then could have happened had I have continued. And so it's the story... Oh, of, it's a fantasy it's a, interpretation. It's an imagining of, yeah. of yeah. that. And based on some real incidents. And did you... Um, did you ever find out well, like what happened to this particular girl or you just completely lost touch? I, I did completely lose touch and I, I would be very nervous. So you're free to just imagine whatever and, yeah. and you've put it into yeah. your book. Yeah. The um, Havana Chronicles. The Havana Chronicles. Do you go to Havana in them? No, that's her name. In, oh, in that's her story. name. Yeah. Oh. And then you have another book called Under God's Table. Is this yeah. being made into a film as well? We're just talking about it. Inevitably, <laughs> yeah. And this, but this is also available for people to read and get. Yeah, that you can get on Amazon.com, uh, and it's uh, a novel. And it's, that's based on some factual stuff that then became, uh, I've elaborated upon, uh, with the, the access to a very in, interesting group of experts from around the world. And it's uh, basically uh, the story of... Two little boys that start off in Iraq, just about the time of shock and awe. Mm. Oh yeah, I remember. And one of them is an Arab boy, and one of them is a Jewish boy. And what then happens as they become grown-ups and become deadly enemies? Well, on the opposite, from being from, on the opposite, yeah, opposite side, the opposite of, side the of having been conflict. total like brothers. And because I think that's one of the great tragedies of the world. Well, it's so, yeah, yeah, because yeah, people that are. You know, could be friends and, and would be, you Should know, be. When, they, when they met, yeah. you know, but then uh, end up on, you know, diametrically yeah. opposed. Yeah. Just like the fox Science. and the hound, but a little more tragic, a well, little you know, it's, it's actually, it, it actually, you're touching on something because we're in America and it's, it makes me actually very sad that I know people, and I, I'm not taking sides, I'm, I'm just stating the fact I was at lunch or brunch this morning and there was... Some people that were pro-Trump and some people that were the other side. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, you, you want to all kill each other. And it's terrible. Oh, it is terrible. The There's such a divide right now in our country. Well, and control people, and people kind of aren't talking to each other. I mean, That's right, they're I, talking oh, at each other. Over the weekend, I was at a, um, um, a fundraiser for my congressman, Adam Schiff, you know, who's a Democrat and the, the minority... Uh, you know, head of the intelligence committee, which just put out its ridiculous Republican report about um, how that uh, thing happened. With yeah, the Russian closing election. the Russian investigation. I am taking sides a little bit there, but but one of the things I was saying to people is just like what happened in the election is that people just weren't talking to each other, That's and all. and you know, and Clinton, you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign was really ignoring the um, concerns and talking down to. You know, a huge swath of the country that felt left out by the exactly, economic... Exactly the same thing happened in England with yeah. Brexit vote. Exactly. exactly. Yes. And yes. it was... And, you, and I tried to explain... I, I, I don't want to take sides either, but I come from a left-leaning liberal mm-hmm. yeah, background. Yeah, me too. And I, and I said, why are you talking down to people like they're idiots? Yeah. Yeah. They're not idiots. They have a perfectly justified point of view that right. you may disagree with, but you can't talk to them like that. They will not accept it. But and our and our media climate, at least you know here, and I, I don't. I, I mean, I, I go to England a lot, but I, I I don't know exactly what all the television stations are doing there right now. But 
I mean, we have Fox News, which is essentially a propaganda state, machine. You know, it, it's it's the Trump propaganda machine at the moment. It, it's always you know. There's also like an there's urban, MSNBC that doesn't necessarily you there's know. There's like an urban rural other stratification of people to where we're really not interacting with the. I think the rural urban divide is really big in America, and I think it really separates a lot of people from interacting with each other with differing ideas. Because I don't know, I feel like I live in the city proper, and I feel like I interact with a lot of people that have the same similar viewpoints as me. And if you go like forty five minutes outside of LA, an hour outside of LA. It's a different culture, I feel like. Well, that's what's happened. It's happened the same exact thing in England. We've got like an echo chamber. We're in mm-hmm. bubbles. Right. And because they're in that bubble, and I'm not in that bubble, as it happens, I speak to all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And I find that, that, I, that my old friends like completely misled themselves. Mm-hmm. That, oh, it's going this way. And you go like, even while it was happening, you go like, yeah. wake up. It's not going yeah. your way. Yes. And even then they've lost. And they lost really badly in England, considering where they thought they were. They still won't accept it. Like the Democrats did in 2016. And, and people, I agree. I mean, there's still, I don't, I don't see enough dialogue. None. You know, and, None. and there's, and it's just, it's so divisive. It's, div- it's divisive and it's, it's permeated everything. Yeah. And it's a tragedy. And, and that, that's what that book's about is how we are not communicating. Yeah. We're just not communicating. And, really and like that will that. lead, that will lead us to ever bigger trouble. Because there was, because these these characters, there was direct communication between yeah. them at, at the beginning as, ch- as children, yeah. and then later they can't That's talk right. to each other. And this yeah. book is called Under God's Table. Yeah, and it's got nothing to do with God. It's not a religious book. Because somebody could go, oh, this is kind of a religious thing. And I went, no, I said, that's not me. No, but the conflict is all yeah. about religion. Yeah, and, and it's also taking apart things that are accepted facts. I'll put quotation marks around the word facts. Where people mm-hmm. perceive things and they go, oh, that's it, because it's like a perceived wisdom. It's like the Spanish Inquisition, and it's mm-hmm. like that's how it is. It can't be any other way. The Earth actually does go around the sun. It's not the other way around. <laughs> yeah, and and that's what's happened is that people you can't talk to people. They they go they've got a fixed position. Yeah, and there is no discussion. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and everyone just has their own set of facts. Yeah, and and the truth is that we. There's, 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 I think I started it. There are shades of grey. Yeah, yeah, and yes. and that and that's one of the reasons why I, I, I wanted to try and make people think, uh, because perception of, a clean limbed boy that does such and such. My my lead character, the hero of this book, is is homosexual, mm-hmm. and I did that very intentionally, not because I'm trying to say homosexuals are better or heterosexuals are worse or anything like that. Mm-hmm. People think think it's not obvious what happens in the world isn't obvious Mm -hmm. and what's happened is that it's become a series of perceptions of accepted wisdom it can only be this way it can only be that cause it can only be that way and it's not true and i'd like people to think about it if i could make a few people think about it that would be a great thing and you know it's like i somebody said to me once we made a film which just come out again now the british film institute got it and and it's also on gonzo called extremes which is the second or third little film I made uh, with Mike Lytton. And when we made it, you know, people measured it by, well, how many tickets did you sell? And we actually did okay. And it won some awards <laughs> and it was all, all okay. 
But actually, it's a, it's the, got the most harrowing sequence of events that happen to people with heroin, for real. Mm-hmm. And in the year we made it, three of the five people we were following, which we didn't go into great detail, died from heroin. Mm. And my best reward wasn't the money, wasn't the award, it was the fact that I had a few people come up to me and say, you know what, your film stopped me using it again. Wow. That if I can do that, if I can make somebody think about that's the point say, of gun control or something, then I've really succeeded. Well, all right. the rest is and, nonsense. Yeah, I mean, and and putting a story out there that is about people not communicating yeah. and getting people to think about like how we can all, you know, live together. Yeah, better. You know, be 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 open to other ideas, to, yeah. to you know, like concepts and and I've, it, but most people aren't, and it's going the other way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and if, I, you know, if enough people say think, maybe people will start to think. Because yeah. I, don't, I don't think people are at the moment. I think it's become so reactive and it negative and, and violently so, scarily so. Everybody's so shut off that they don't. They they can't even start the conversation because they have their idea and it's like immediately that conflict. Well, it's like and in, all these people talking online. There's not really a there's a lot of scary interaction. Yeah, and there's a lot of scary things going on. That forms of racism that are becoming acceptable that were not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Right. And I I I cannot accept that. I personally cannot accept that. And well, I think Trump has a lot to do with that. Unfortunately, I think it's yeah, but I think it's an echo chamber. You look in the Labour Party in England; it's completely anti-Semitic. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it, how can that be okay? And it's just a weird swinging of the pendulum. I mean, it, it's, I think it. I, I feel like a lot of Trump's success is a reaction against having a black president here for yeah. for eight years, and just like a lot of pent up, you know, frustration and rage. Um, and he tapped into that. Yeah. Not we, not saying that every one of his supporters is racist. No, but like, but but there's this undercurrent that he's kind of like made it okay to yes to, to come out of the closet. feels like our country's yeah. really exercising some demons right now yeah. well, it's That's also it like. if you think and, about and it you correctly put, say it's, it's all over Europe too oh yeah well you know Voltaire said a country gets the government it deserves and unfortunately we must have all done something terrible <laughs> wrong because look at the people we're getting run one hopes it's temporary you know I, I mean, think I just, things swing like a pendulum it, it does swing like a pendulum and I think that like we just saw with this marching of, of students, you know, like young people are going to save us, one hopes. I agree with that. And I think some of those young people are remarkable. But the thing that I found disturbing in the social media context about that was they headlined it as an anti-Trump rally and it wasn't anything to do with Trump. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, he's an idiot and the way he behaved, sorry. They're talking, so no, but they're no, talking. We touch into that Trump all the time on the podcast. But, yeah, they they're not talking about him. It's not. It, it's it it's about, about sa- their own safety. It's my, like my we grand, will not. That's right. My grandchildren not, are having to hide behind doors. And, yeah, you know, but that is like insane. we won't tolerate living in fear like this. But when I've, certain sensible actions could be taken to get guns out of dangerous people's hands, I you know in England it's just totally illegal to have a gun unless you're a hunter. Right. Mm-hmm. There are no exceptions. You can't have a gun. And our murder rate with guns in a year is about six to ten people. The whole country. It's a country of nearly yeah. seven I mean, people. And, and look at what Australia did. Same thing. Which they had more, there were guns more pervasive in their country and then they enacted laws and that now their, their rate is, yeah. is like that. 
Guns are so... The statistics are so obvious. But unfortunately... Internationally, within our country, when you look domestically at states that but who's, have but who's, in this country, who's writing a book about it? Who's making a film about it? Who's got a play about it? Right. That's my point. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's so tough to do. Because people are going to give you a problem. Unfortunately, guns are so um, entwined in, in the origin of this country that it's just... I, I, I don't know how you... Deal with the guns that are already out there. It's well, just like, we're, we're just, you have, to make, with you have to make them illegal. But, you know, the, I, I remember once when I was living here and I was a member of the Chamber of Commerce where I lived and they were talking about dog fouling the sidewalk. And I, I got up because I just had been a shooting recently. And mm. I said, you're worried about dog poo and there's people getting shot. And they got really angry with me and I had I was threatened by somebody. Um, uh, and I, because you know, you mind your effing business, you you know so on and so forth. And I, I thought, uh, how can you justify that it's okay to shoot someone uh, for any reason? Like, the, what what could possibly be okay about that? No, it's brainwashing. I don't know. It's propaganda media. It's crazy to watch it all happen. But you know, when you look at the casualty numbers, there's more people being killed by guns in this country since Vietnam than were killed in the Second World War American troops. Way more, like five mm-hmm. times more. Yeah. And it, I think it's over a million. And, you know, that's just... That's just if it was any other form of, of, of that happening, if there, there would be the biggest protest ever in the history of mankind. And the reason it doesn't really... Because it doesn't really affect the upper class, to be honest. That's what's going on. Totally. If it was affecting all the guys who run this country, who own this country, it would be stopped in a minute. But, well, I mean, school shootings do affect people across socioeconomic How many levels. have happened in Westlake School? How many have happened in, uh, I mean, you know, like Harvard or places like that? Well, I mean, that you know, that I, I think that that Parkland area is that's relatively why that, affluent. And that's why, because they are affluent and because there's a large... Jewish and Columbine, I think, was also And there's a large lo- number of lawyers in the, in this, in the alumni. That's why they're getting attention. And because that Connecticut shooting too. I completely agree the, with that. That elementary Connecticut shooting in whatever that town was. No, but um, I think the more the more uh, prestigious is not the right word I'm looking for, but the more uh, erudite the people are that get attacked, yeah. the more likely it is there's going to be a reaction. And this has created a reaction. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Laws are passed based no, off of what rich people want. But they're not going away. I mean, it didn't end, I don't think. I hope this, it's not going away. This, but it's uh, like, I, I can't understand, as an outsider, and people, I don't want to upset American friends because I'm very pro-American. I love this country. But I, as an outsider, and I hear people say, yeah, let's get rid of automatic weapons. Get rid of all the weapons. I mean, it's, 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 it's really simple. No guns. I completely, I completely agree with you. I agree it's with just, that. I don't see you that talk happening. to people and they're, they're just so down this rabbit hole. It's just well, so the other crazy. Thing is they keep quoting the Constitution and the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment goes on to say to form a militia. It doesn't say just have a gun. Well, and it also says a well-regulated militia. Yeah, a well-regulated and, militia. And it, and it, yeah. it re- which was trying to put the word regulated and... It's, it, it's it a gun have, control amendment. Yeah, it was to try and control the country. It wasn't yeah, it was a big standing army. It wasn't an yeah. invitation that every every person who a wants a gun can yeah. get a gun. And it, it's become a complete... Um, it shines a light on America that is so unfortunate. And people that don't understand America 
missiles that intentionally because yeah. of this. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's it's idiotic. Well, this this is a time of, of um, America in an unfortunate light. Yeah. Um, in so many ways. Yeah. Um, Tony Klinger, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. I for could talk to you all day. I honestly, you have so many interesting things to say. It was a delight to have you. Thank you. I probably talked too much, but there again, I no, 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 no. no it's you're all about fascinating, you. and you're they great. hear us all the time on this. Thing, you're a so. great rock hunter, and you've led a, you've led a fascinating life. And I hope that people go find your books. And support your upcoming films. Thank you, thank you. Um, go back through your back catalog. And you're finding ways to um, to re-release all these things, even early short films. I think that's great. Thank so you. thank you so much thank for coming. Thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. And I hope everybody gets to read the books, see the films, and get to listen to the music. Perfect. Absolutely. There you have it. Thank you. Um, and for all of our listeners, if you enjoyed this, please like us, subscribe us, tell your friends, share, share the episodes with people. Yeah. yeah. Keep listening. Keep listening. We appreciate God. it. Listen, listen to other episodes. We're international now, y'all. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye.